Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. It connects to your Swim Nerd mobile app, allowing you to program any set your heart desires. Except for 100 100s while listening to Nickelback. You can't program that. That that is not allowed. If you haven't seen the Swim Nerd Pace Clock yet, go to swimpractice.com to check it out. All right, Bob Bowman, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Brett. I really appreciate this. I know your time's uh, valuable. You're uh, super busy with um, the university work that you're doing at ASU. So just give us a quick update. Tell us what's going on right now. Well, you know, we're back into training now for since August, which has been good. Um, a little different getting used to all the constraints about who can come in and go and how they get cleared to practice. But in general, we've, we've had about six pretty good weeks of practice so far. So we're, I'm pretty happy with that. Now, you know, obviously you made big headlines when you came out and you, you kind of redshirted everybody pretty early in the process here. And it kind of sent a message to all the other schools and all the other head coaches. And um, it, it was definitely a, a leadership type um, move. So, so talk to me about um, how you came to that decision and, and are you still – um, confident you made the right one. Yeah. Um, well, first off, I'm very confident we made the right one. Um, and the main reason for that is I think a large part of the mental health crisis that's going on during COVID Mm. is due to the fact that nothing is known, right? We don't know what's happening tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow looks like. Things change on a daily basis. And right now I think even in the conferences who are starting to have competition. I know in the PAC 12, I've been on some calls, even though we're not competing and the whole thing is unknown. And what our team has is we know exactly what we're going to (laughs) do. So we've had that now for quite a while. So that's been taken off the table. Um, The other part of it is even if there is a season, what is it going to look like? Mm -hmm. You know, our kids have already lost an NC2A championship. And I didn't feel like we could put them in a place where that could happen twice, for sure, particularly with a very talented senior class that I have on the women and the men. So by giving them the extra year, it assures them that they're going to have another year of development, that they're going to get to be, we hope, in a more regular season and championship season with a lot of time to get ready. Because quite frankly, everybody lost during COVID, right? I'm not sure. Maybe there's somebody that got better. But in general... Most people were out of training uh, for a significant amount of time. And this allows us a chance to kind of slowly and methodically build back to something that we would feel good about. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Um, You know, you're a smart man with experience and, um, you know, years of coaching behind you, but you're, you're dealing with, kids you know you're dealing especially you know kids that are just coming into the program for the first time this is a really big deal for them how do you deliver that message and how do you get them to understand exactly what you're thinking and feeling and why you've come to this decision well we took them through the steps number one this decision allowed them a lot of flexibility about where they train how they train some are staying home and training because they're Mm. in very good situations some have come later some came right away Uh, So they had that piece of the puzzle where we could be maximum flexibility in terms of, you know, where they train because of their academic um, 
avenues that we have. You can either go online, you can do something called a sync, which is like a virtual class, but it's like meets at the same time it's taught live. Mm. Or you could do uh, in person. We actually have some of those here. So they could choose from the things that they and their families thought was best. So that was the first step. The second step was we feel like our team was just about to break through. Our men went in seated seventh, right? We had two top three relays. Two of those guys were seniors, and we don't want them to lose a chance to really do something when it matters. So giving them an extra year of development is a very good thing. And honestly, giving our whole team an extra year of development is not a bad thing. Uh, and finally, and perhaps the most significant thing, is we're able to offer them another year of school, and we're able to pay for it. So that's, you know, a lot of people are going to graduate. If, if they don't get a master's degree, they will have done graduate work. So I think that's a benefit as well. Did you get any pushback? Was there anybody that said, I don't like this decision? Not one person. Awesome. Or parent. Nice. Parents were completely in favor of it. Um, I will say that we're in a unique situation because going into this next year, for a variety of reasons we won't go into here, there were no scholarship divers on men or women's teams for next year. Mm. However, we have allocated scholarship money for that, that we can use to add the extra red shirt year before we bring back diving. And we're bringing it back for sure. But that just allowed us the flexibility to move some things around and make it happen and pay for it. Listen, personally, uh, as a former head coach at a, at a big university, I, I love the decision. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was a, a, a leadership decision. I honestly thought more people would jump on board. Are you surprised by the fact that more teams haven't followed suit? I am, but I, like I said, we're in a really unique situation where we could make the money work without relief from the NC2A. And I think we might get it anyway. I think everybody might have some eligibility relief after they kind of get into this season. But we don't really have to worry about that, and that was why we could do it early. All right, so let, let's let's get on to some other things. I um, yeah. I'm completely overwhelmed by this, Bob. You know, when I look at when I when I look into you. Um, it overwhelms me. <laughs> i just tell you that. So I, I called a few friends yesterday. I phoned a friend. Oh, wow. So I, I called David Marsh and I said, David, mm -hmm. where do I start with Bob Bowman? Uh, and he gave me some ideas and then, um, I still wasn't feeling completely comfortable. So I was like, all right, I'll call Jack Roach. So I called Jack and, and we had a phone conversation and he gave me some ideas. Um, but honestly it wasn't until this morning where I kind of got a clear picture of where I wanted to go with this. And I was actually sure. sitting there watching, uh, your talk from a few years back, several years back of um, the characteristics of a champion. And that's kind of when mm -hmm. I got a clear picture of where I wanted to go with this. It, it really made okay. some sense to me because it's just too big. You're, you're too yeah. big. Uh, the, the person you dealt with for many years is too big. Um, I'm looking at his resume online here and it's ridiculous. It's just stupid yeah. how good it is. It's just crazy. But um, from your perspective, what, what is a champion? Like, what does that word mean to you? Champion, is, to me, is someone who has done everything they could do to maximize their potential, whatever level that takes them to. You know, we all don't have the same physical attributes. We all didn't come up in the North Baltimore Aquatic Club where they have a long history of producing gold medalists. And, you know, so I think it's someone who starts wherever they are, uses all the talents that they've been blessed with, and pushes themselves to their limits to see how close to their potential they can get. I don't think we, any of us ever get there, but it's the pursuit that matters. Okay. So 
when you had put this talk together, um, mm. primarily it was about who? It's probably about Michael, I guess, at that point, you know. Yeah. But I think it carries over to anybody, those points, right? Okay, exactly. So this is my point yeah. here. So when I'm watching it, yeah. who, do you, who do you think I'm thinking of when I'm watching you speak? I hope you're thinking about yourself. Well, well in, <laughs> a, in, a way, in a way, yes. But you know what I'm yeah. thinking? You know who I'm yeah. thinking of? I'm thinking of you. You know, oh, when, wow. when you go through these points, when you talk about these points, because I'm looking at it from a coach perspective, you know, yeah. what separates the, the good coaches from the great coaches, you know, and a lot of the people that listen to my podcast are coaches. And so, yes, I'm, I'm fascinated with Michael, just like everybody else, you know, but um, I, I'm actually more interested in you because I want to be like you. I want to be a champion. I want to have a relationship that you had with your athlete. You know, one of the most amazing things I think that doesn't show up on any of these resumes is the fact that you took Michael from here and you ended up here all the way to yeah. the end. I mean, you guys went the full gamut, you know, people just don't stay with coaches that long. You know, you, you right. see, no, you see right. any champion yeah. and they don't go from a child to the greatest athlete of all time. I mean, even, even um, a Tiger Woods or a Michael Jordan or a Kobe Bryant had had many different coaches throughout their careers. But sure. But the thing that fascinates me is the fact that you took Michael from a kid all the way to the very end. How was that even possible? Well, it started out really random, right? I was at North Baltimore Aquatic Club. The I was an assistant coach. We decided to rearrange the groups. And this hotshot kid, Michael, who was 11, ended up in this group I was coaching. And, um, so that's how it started. Hmm. And quite frankly, when I got Michael, um, I wasn't even planning to coach that long. I was kind of in North Baltimore trying to figure out what I might do next. I had kind of felt like maybe coaching wasn't what I was supposed to do. Um, but, and because of that, I think it made it really great for, for him because I decided, hey, here's this kid who has all of this, everything going for him, right? but he's got these expectations. I'm going to give him the foundation of things at 11 and 12 and 13. If I'm here that long and he's in my group that long that he can will allow him to go as far as he wants to go. And so I didn't hesitate to start changing all his strokes immediately, which is pretty hard to do with a kid that's already a nag record holder at nine and 10. Mm. And uh, the way that actually played out was, um, Michael made had no nag records as an 11, 12 year old. People don't know that, right? He had several as a nine and 10, but he didn't have any as a 11, 12, mainly because I was changing his strokes, every mm. stroke we were working on, mm. trying to get the breaststroke to be number one, recognizable, and number two, actually usable, which took quite a bit of time. But um, we, we decided to just I'd take his development slowly, move him through that, give him all of the, the mindset and the how to practice and the things that we try to do in practice that he could then build on year after year. And it just kind of happened that we stayed together about the time that he was going to move up to the top group. I took over the top group. And then after a while we were just together. Um, yeah. We're together now. I'm at his house every night playing with yeah. the kids, but I, I it's uh, yeah. been an amazing thing an absolutely amazing thing. I see that. And, and I want to dig in t later on to yeah. um, the, the easy stuff, the stuff that came easy and maybe some, yeah. some of the struggle stuff, you know, the, sure. the, the challenging stuff. Um, 
I'm not into, uh, if, if you watch any of my podcasts, I'm not into the, the tabloid stuff. You know, I don't, I don't yeah, care yeah, about yeah. that. What I, what I care sure. about is like, you know, the, the struggles because we, we all have yeah. them. So how do we identify those? Um, so in relation to this talk, specifically the characteristics of a champion, I want to go through point by point the points yeah. that you made. And I want you to reference you because I want coaches to learn about you and mm-hmm. I want them to learn how, how do you become the next Bob Bowman? Uh, and there are certain characteristics, uh, obviously, about you that make you a, a great coach um, and, and one of the Thank greatest you. in history. So we do need to analyze that a little bit. So the first point that you made is champions have a clear plan for success and achieving their goals. So in relation to right. you, how does that relate to you? Well, I guess for me, that relates to my team or the athletes, right? That's my job. My job is helping, you know, and if they swim faster, uh, I get everything that I want out of this sport. You know what I mean? It's not really clearly about me, but it's about me creating an environment where they can do their thing. And the great thing about swimming is it's sort of set up to give you some pretty clear goals because it's an objective sport, right? You want to swim this time at this meet, uh, this far away from where we are today. So there are a lot of things that you can measure and you can manage. And that's what I mean about clear goals. Um, I think when you start thinking about the very long term, those are your more inspirational goals, right? Your long term goal, like my favorite example of that is, you know, every eight year old in the North Baltimore Aquatic Club thinks they're going to swim on the Olympic team and they should. Right. And they see people every day who do it and they see all these faces on the wall of the pool where they train. Um, But maybe one will. But it drives them to come to practice. It fuels this whole experience that they're going to have, which is going to be amazing with swimming, whether they get to that level or not. But that's your far away goal, your dream goal. And then as you work closer to the present time, you can be more and more specific and you can have mid-range goals. You can have seasonal goals. You can have kind of an annual uh, plan is what I think you can do specifically, right? I can't see much past one year. And then you work that into seasons or mesocycles, however you want to break it up, and you work it back to where you are right now. And the most important goal we're all going to have is what are we going to do right now? I call that the immediate goal, right? What decision am I going to make right now that leads to the next step, which leads to the next step, which leads to the next thousand steps? Um, So I think that's what I mean by having clear goals. You have a plan and you have it broken down into things that you can actually sink your teeth into. So did Bob Bowman have goals for himself? Did, did you set goals for Bob Bowman? Did you say one day I'd love to be uh, on the U.S. Olympic coaching staff? Was that a goal for you? Yeah, for sure. Okay. I wanted to be an Olympic coach. Yep. Uh, one of my big ones was I wanted to coach someone to a world record. Hmm. To me, that's really awesome. To me, that's better than a gold medal because, you know, the Olympic gold medal uh, is incredible, but that means you are better than everybody on a certain day. The world record means you're better than everybody ever. Sure. So to me, that was kind of a standard that I really wanted to coach people to that level. Well, you did say that at one point early on, you didn't see yourself as a coach and it wasn't yeah. kind of in your long-term future. And now you're talking about wanting to, to coach somebody to a world record. So when did that transition yeah. happen? Um, it transitioned right about, I'll give you a little background. Do you want to know about struggles? Sure. Here's some struggles. This is ancient history, but it's probably <laughs> important. Yep. Um, so I had started off as an eager coach. I started coaching in college my senior year in Florida State University, an age group team. 
I was very lucky to get a job at the Cincinnati Marlins. I was their head age group coach, big program, age group program. Um, it, it tells you a little bit about how coaches develop. The reason I took that job is because when I went there and I was like, how many kids have double A times on this team? There were like 60. I had like four on my Florida team, right? You know what I mean? So that was <laughs> yeah. what I took the job for. Uh, had two good years there. Went on to coach with David Marsh mm -hmm. at Las Vegas Gold Swim Team for two years. Uh, coached a team in Birmingham, Alabama. My first uh, head coaching job. You were probably swimming there back then. I don't know, it was 92. It was maybe mm, a little bit early. A little yeah. bit before your time. <laughs> um, so I had kind of moved around and moved up and moved up, and I was 100% committed to it, right? Yep. Like I didn't do anything but coach all day long, all night. Uh, when I was in Birmingham, I would get there at 5 in the morning. I would leave the pool at 9 at night. I would just go, right? Wow. And then I finally got this position where I was the head coach of Napa Valley Swim Team. And I had some people come out to train with me, Eric Wunderlich, mm -hmm. kid named Ian Mull. Um, and this was in 1994. And we had a great year. And I was like, this is how it's going to happen. 1996 is going to be my thing. So Eric comes out and we have this great year. And he does his first best time in 100 breasts in four years. Wins the Pampax in Atlanta. We're headed to the games, right? Well, everything's going good. Ian goes to World University game, wins a gold medal, third fastest American behind Dolan and Snick. So he didn't really have a chance at that. But you know what I mean? He was yeah. kind of there. Yeah. So right after the Pampax, I also, this is a, I don't know if I should tell this or not, but like I had applied to be head coach at Dynamo Swim Club, right? Big deal. Because I was always about moving up, moving up, moving up. Mm. So not only was I going to, get the head coach at Dynamo. I was going to have Eric with me, who was a Dynamo swimmer in the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. And we're going to bring Ian and we're going to build this group and do everything right. Right. So I go to the nationals and Dave Marsh comes up and he says, look, I don't want you to be disappointed, but they're going to hire the guy who interviewed last weekend. I'm like, that was me. I interviewed last weekend. So I think I got this in the bag, right? We go to Pampac, Eric wins a gold medal. Right after that, one day later, Dynamo calls and says they hired Pierre Lafontaine, not mm. me. <laughs> so I'm like, well, okay, I still got these guys. It's okay. We can do our thing. Uh, right after that, about two days later, Eric sits down and says, look, I love everything we're doing and the training, but I just can't train outside in the rain with these little kids for the Olympics. So he goes back to Michigan. Mm. And I'm like, you know what? I tried really hard at this. I think I'm okay at it but it's not going to work. And after 10 years, I'm just tired. I'm going to go to veterinary school. I was actually going to go to Auburn to mm. veterinary school. Well, there you go. Uh, I went down and met with a guy who was an equine vet, who's very good. And uh, David was going to set me up as a GA at Auburn. So I'm in Napa, California, and I was going to go and David was going to pay me like 10 grand a year to be your GA and that's do the distance that's, swimming. That's yeah, what he paid me you know? the first year. He's not, there you go. <laughs> and, well, that was later. I don't know. But anyway, so it was going to be that I was going to go to school and coach the distance group at Auburn. And, uh, one, I, I got a call from Murray Stevens out of the blue who I had kind of known a little bit. And he said, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I don't know that I really want to coach that much but I want to go back to school. And he said, well, you can go back to school in Baltimore. Why don't you come work with us? And I had known the club and very good situation. And the only reason I went to Baltimore 
was he said, well, what's Auburn paying you? I said, 10 grand. He said, I'll give you 35. I was like, I'll be there next week. (laughs) (laughs) That was literally it. So I go to North Baltimore Aquatic Club and about two years later, Michael's in my group and it just sort of happened. Um, but it st- it really happened when I stopped looking for it, right? There's a good life lesson, guys. Okay. The universe will open things up to you when you're ready. I wasn't ready in 1996. So I, I that's kind of, you talk about the struggles. I definitely had some to get started. It wasn't all just kind of everything was great. That's awesome. Well, the other moral to the story, yeah. I think, with that is that you never give up, you know? You just, no, you, you just kind of – even when I was so discouraged, I actually never went back to school. As soon as I got to Baltimore, I just loved everything about it and learned so much and, and kind of got reinvigorated. And it sort of put me on the path where I am now. Yeah, I, I can relate to that as a swimmer a little bit. I had this talk with uh, Susie O'Neill, and we kind of talked about this as well. Is like, you know, you look back on your career and you wonder, how did I get here? And for yeah. me, there was always people that were better than me or there was always someone that worked harder or was more talented. But as the years went on, those people tended to just drop off. And I just kept going. And you just work through that process. No matter how hard it is, you just keep believing, keep work. And like you said, the universe will open up situations for you. And you've got to take those situations when they do. But you just don't quit, right? No, you just keep going. Yeah, exactly. That's my, when young coaches ask me for advice, I'm like, number one, be patient. Number two, don't ever quit. Just Mm -hmm. keep at it, regardless of your circumstances. You know, the, the guy who fired me for, I was actually fired from my first job in a college. Oh, how about wow. that? Wow. And then I don't know how many years later, the guy who fired me had to give me my first ask a coach of the year award. That was a pretty good handshake. <laughs> so things happen, right? It, it all works out. Just stay with it. Yeah. I love it. Beautiful. Uh, all right. So let's go to your next point then. Champions welcome challenges as a means to learn and grow. Uh, give, us, yeah. give us a specific instance maybe where, other than what you've just talked about, where you've had yeah. some challenges where you've had to learn and grow. Um, I think any time that you have, well, anything that you're working at, you're going to find challenges, right? Because what happens is you develop your skill set to a certain level and you're confident in it, right? You mm-hmm. have your thing. And your thing works. But after it works for a certain amount of time, you got to come up with something else. You can't just keep doing the same old thing, right? Mm. So you're constantly challenged to find ways to modify it, to add to it, to uh, throw it out and start over. I mean, there's some times where I'm just like, well, this isn't working. We just have to try something completely different. And I, I feel like I've gotten a lot better as I have grown as a coach at building my toolbox to handle whatever different situations come up. You know, when I started out, all I had was a hammer. So everything looked like a nail, right? You know, just, just tough it out, right? Mm-hmm. That'll make it better, work harder. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it really works at the top level. Certainly not at the top level because it's a lot mental and it has a lot to do with the individual. So I think you just sort of look at situations and try to work your way through them. And if, usually if you have enough time, you'll be able to do that. Um, if you don't have enough time, that's when things kind of just go wrong. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> All right. We'll dig into that a little bit more. I got, I yeah. got some questions on that. So the next point, uh, champions produce, uh, normal and predictable performances mm-hmm. in very abnormal and unpredictable environments in relation to you. How does that yeah. relate to you? Um, well, if you want to do anything at the Olympics, it's about being able to do it in the environment. 
Mm-hmm. That's the challenge. Mm-hmm. I, I know how to coach people at every meet along the way at NC2As, at the mm-hmm. age group meet down the street. But coaching at the Olympics is a, some, it's about helping them, number one, focus on the task at hand mm-hmm. and not have all these distractions. And number two, helping them handle them when they come up because something's going to come up, right? I tell every one of my kids at the Olympics, you know, the Olympics is just a large media event with some athletic contests sprinkled mm-hmm. in. I agree. So realize that's what it is, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're going to kind of work through uh, your routine, your uh, mental preparation, and you're going to rehearse that all the way along the way. You know, Michael does the same thing behind the blocks in his last race in Rio that he did the first race I ever saw him swim, the yep. arm slap thing, all the mm-hmm. stretching, the routine is the same. Mm-hmm. And that has a purpose that gets him in the right mind frame to compete. And if you've done that for 20 years, it's pretty solid, right? Yep. Did, so did anyway, Bob, did Bob, well, well, did Bob Bowman have a routine? Let's say when you're uh-huh. at the Olympic games, there's a lot of downtime and, and this is what oh, people yeah. don't understand. And, and you much, have to wait too much, <laughs> way too much. You have to manage your emotions and you have to be ready at certain points for your athlete. You know, you yeah. can't be, you can't be too high and you can't be too low. So you've got to figure all that out yourself. So, um, what's some advice you can give to somebody that may be going you know, to, to NCAAs in that environment or, or the Olympics in that environment as a coach, how do you manage yourself? Um, number one, you realize it's not life and death. It's a swimming meet. Mm-hmm. That's important because at the end of the day, that's what it is. Right. Um, that will just help you see it a little bit differently. But we if, that, know one, it's if that one performance yeah. can change your life, that's a pretty yeah, big well, deal. Well, that's what I'm saying. No, it is a big deal, but you have to act like it's not. You have okay. to convince you. You have to focus on the steps, mm. right? Not the outcome, the process. Okay. So my advice would be find as many process goals as you can and focus on those. And for me at the Olympic Games, that's number one, taking care of myself. Like every time I'm in these training camp or Olympic situations, and I try to do it in my everyday life now, it's actually worked pretty well. I exercise every day, first thing in the day. I give myself what I call quiet time, which I don't think it's meditation, but it's just me sitting with a cup of coffee by myself Mm. in the dark or wherever it is, just Mm -hmm. kind of getting myself together, thinking about what's going to happen during the day, kind of set my intentions for Mm. what I'd like to have. So Mm. I think that's important to me. Um, I try to have a very structured day and I have the athletes do the same thing. Like if you saw one of my athletes during a training camp or during the games themselves, we would have sat down together and come up with a schedule of what they're going to do every day, including nap, lunch, Mm -hmm. massage, Mm -hmm. afternoon practice, maybe go to the mall one day, whatever it is, but it's planned out. It's not random because Mm -hmm. that's when I think things kind of get off whack is when they don't have a really solid plan that kind of takes them through their day, leads to the next day, leads to the travel, leads to what we're going to do to get over the travel, leads to the village, how you're going to handle all of that. So for me, having everything planned out and knowing, having done it a few times, you know what it's going to be like helps, right? But uh, I think that's a key element. The other thing is visualization, right? I think I'm talking about the next point. Is that one of these points? Um, yep, next, yep. I'm a huge believer in visualization, and I visualize as a coach. Mm. And it sounds kind of dumb, 
but there's some music that I'll listen to. And while I listen to it, I run a little movie of my head coaching at the beat and kind of the way that I want to do it. Right. Perfect. Yeah. Not kind of being nervous or anxious, but kind of being there, being in the moment, being present, uh, having the athletes in the right frame of mind, which is critical. Uh, so that's a tip that I use as well. Love it. That, that, that's great advice. Um, that's one of the things I learned to, to ma- uh, put into my management of myself at these meets as well is, is a visualization. I'd actually turn the lights off, put some music on and then visualize how I wanted to act on the pool deck that day, you know? Yeah, for sure. Because, because yeah. they're going to feed off you, right? Like uh, exactly. If, if they smell um, fear, then they're going to feel fear. If they, if they feel confidence coming from their coach, then they're going to eventually tap into that confidence and, and feel the same way. You, you're going to manifest the emotions that, that eventually are going to spread onto your athlete, right? Oh, for sure. You know, Murray Stevens gave me great advice years ago, and he said the most important thing a coach needs to learn at the top level is not to transmit your nervousness to the athlete. Mm, perfect. That is 100% it. And I had, in the beginning, that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. You know, in Athens, Michael's first chance at a gold medal, that's the only time I've ever seen him nervous was mm-hmm. before the 400 IM, mm-hmm. literally in every race. And I was like, I, I saw a, a clip of that race not long ago, and they show me right before it. There's a camera like right in my face, and I'm smiling with John Urbanchek. And I'm literally making myself do that. And I remember in my head, I'm like, all I want to do is throw up right now. <laughs> so you kind of start to learn how to make all that happen. But yeah, I love it. Yeah, perfect. I've experienced very similar things. So, um, well, that does kind of lead to the next point where it says champions rehearse success on a daily basis, mentally, physically, mm-hmm. emotionally. Is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I do. Um, coach every meet like it's your big meet. Don't let them get away with like, you know, not trying hard in the local meets. Michael would some 155 in the 200 fly at our June meet at NBAC, year in, year out. He, because he knew that was a, a, an opportunity to practice his routine, to practice his racing skills, and to practice everything that goes into a performance. So don't minimize some of these early meets like, oh, well, we're just going to swim for, I don't know why we're swimming, right? You know what I mean? Every meet is important, and the warm-up is important. The way that you go about it, the feedback you get after the races, all of that is just the same at a local meet as it really is at the Olympics. And I know that it's, the stakes are different. But if you practiced it every one along the way, the Olympics are just a logical step. It's just the next step. Michael Jordan said it. Just you know, We just did that great thing about him, uh, you know, the series. And he said, you know, he approached every practice like it was the most important practice he ever had. And every meet, every game that he played, he played like it was the NBA final. And I think that's important. I think the great ones kind of understand that. But that message is coming from you. So why did, exactly. you, why did you believe in that? Like, where did that develop? How did you know that that was the right approach? Well, I was actually lucky. I worked with a lot of really good coaches and I picked that up along the way. You know, I, I was with three different Olympic coaches I work with and every one of them kind of gave me a little something. Hmm. Um, and you know, when I was coaching, uh, with Paul Bergen, I learned how to do the training and the racing his way. When I was with David Marsh, I learned how to do it his way. When I was with Murray Stevens, I learned how to do it his way. And I took all of those things and kind of took the best from each and kind of made it my way. Hmm. But I think 
the mindset that those guys had to get people to the top levels of performance is probably where I picked all of that stuff up. It's like the way that you do anything is how you're going to do everything. I try to tell my kids that. So don't be sloppy. Don't drag your equipment bag down the pool deck. Mm. Pick it up and play. Treat it like it's important. You know. I love that. Love Have that. you ever yeah. seen that? You know. Mm. I know that God. Goes. Yeah. So I, I, I think I learned do, that from David Mosh. He reamed yeah, exactly. someone one day for dragging their bag. <laughs> for sure. That's a. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure I got that from David. Walk like a winner, right? Before yeah. practice, walk around the pool like a winner. Mm -hmm. Practice doing it. Yeah. David would do that. Yeah. It makes sure. a difference. It does. It makes a huge difference. You know, when when you, when you start to live that, um, it becomes part of who you are. It separates you from other people. It really does. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these big races are separated by nothing, right? Hundredth yeah. of a second. Yep. So that's one finish. And one of the things that I have always been, and it just I felt like so critical was finishes in practice nobody in my group gets to finish sloppy we do it over right yeah. at least the finish over maybe the set over I've done that so Michael for his whole career had been held to a really high standard on that and you know I can't say that that's what made him hit the wall right in Beijing but definitely he had a large database of good finishes to practice with right or yeah. ways to get on the wall yeah, uh, actually, you just reminded me of something, and I, and I've seen some of your programs where um, most days, or if not every day, you write a quote uh, on on the program itself. I, I love that, um, and I've and I've, I stole that from you, so I started doing that with my athletes. But I, I put up one today. Um, one of one of the athletes I'm working with loves Lewis Hamilton, and one of the quotes I used today actually was, "Concentration and mental toughness are the margins of victory." There you go. And that's kind of uh, goes along to, that's, to what you're that's saying. That's it. You know, at the, at the very top level, everybody has talent and everybody's prepared. Uh -huh. You know, it's not just going to be, you know, nobody has an extra arm. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be something small. It's going to make the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I love it. Um, we're going down the list here. Champions value the process of success mm -hmm. more than uh, any particular outcome. And, and you and I are both fans of Nick Saban and his teaching yep. and, and, uh, and his coaching. You're um, a fan of Nick Saban? I am a fan. I'm a fan of coaching. Of his coaching. No, I get it. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan of brilliant coaching, and he's uh, certainly somebody that we can all learn from. But um, For sure. in terms of that, uh, how it relates to you, talk, to me, talk mm -hmm. to me about that. Well, I think the things that make you nervous are outcomes. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you're talking, you know, so if you wanted to learn how to manage your own emotions or mental state, Focusing on a process will lower your physiological activation state. That's mm -hmm. science, right? There's a mm -hmm. bell curve. Yep. So there's a point at which, you know, you want to be physiologically activated. You're, you'll have ultimate potential at the top of the bell curve. And once you go past here, it's where you get into the choking stage, right? So what you want to do is you want to be active to a certain point. But how you manipulate that is process and outcome. If you focus on process-oriented goals, your activation state lowers. If you focus on outcome goals, it raises. So it depends on the athlete, right? There's some athletes I've had that are very underactivated and I needed to get them going. I'd be like, you know, this is your chance. <laughs> you know what I mean? They would kind of yeah. come up like this, but most people tend to be overactivated. So I would say, okay, let's focus on first three strokes, get into your rhythm, 
make sure you nail the first turn, whatever it is, right? It's some specific thing about how you want this race to be done, which takes their mind off of things that are out of their control, like what other people do in a race. That's where outcomes are problematic because they're largely dependent on other people and things with outside our control. We can control how we prepare, the standards we hold ourselves to, the strategies we use, the concentration we bring to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So that's where I try to spend my time as a coach, just like, you know, it's, it's very easy as a coach. I, I remember going to some of the early training camps and you know how these things are. You've got all these great people together and these great coaches who were my heroes and you're watching what they do and you're wondering, Ooh, I should probably, we should probably try that or maybe we should mm -hmm. do that. But what you really need to do is what you do. Yeah. And so after a while, we had great success kind of sticking with our program. And I think that's part of it. You know, you just kind of stay in your lane. Yeah. I, I love it. That's awesome. Uh, the last point you made is champions have a dream. Um, you, you've realized a lot of your dreams, uh, probably, sure. probably beyond your wildest dreams. So what, where you are right now, what's the next dream for Bob Bowman? The dream for me is to develop an NC2A championship program. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm here. It's like you said, I've kind of done a lot of other things. Yep. And, and, and I should probably preface that. It's like the dream for me is that the kids who come into our program go as far as they can go. Yep. So if I bring in the right kids and we do that, we'll have a, you know, something good will happen at the end. Mm -hmm. But that's what I really love to do. And I realized kind of in Baltimore, it was interesting. You had that story about Yannick and it was so great to see him. I love him to death. Right. And he told that little time where I threw the coffee, right? And everybody's mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, Bob's mad all the time. Well, I'm really not, but I remember that day specifically 100%. And the reason I threw the coffee was I was so overwhelmed by so many things. I was the head coach of North Baltimore Aquatic Club. I was coaching this pro group of a lot of high-powered people. Mm. I was running a business that had 150 employees and wasn't really doing that well at a time to make the whole thing run. Mm-hmm. So I'm worried about paying the taxes and the payroll and the this and the that and the other. And the one good thing in my life at that time was Yannick's training, right? <laughs> so when that went wrong, I was like, okay, Keenan, that's it. We're done. And I didn't leave him in the water. I left him with Keenan Robinson, the best swimming shoulder person in the world. So yeah, that was, yeah. but that's why I had to kind of follow up with him because it had nothing to do with him. It was like, okay, but that was like the last straw. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I've done in my, I've tried to do in my life since then is edit things, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to focus on my program here at ASU. I want to develop people, do what I love, which is actually the day-to-day -day coaching and kind of cut out a lot of this other stuff. Yeah. So that's been part of it. Awesome. Love it. Uh, and, and I think you're well on your way, no doubt about it. And, and Bob, I've thrown some coffees in my life, so it's all good. <laughs> I think it was empty. It was just the cup. I would never waste a coffee. That's kind of my medicine, right? Well, you know what? Actually, I felt a little bit guilty after that because I, I had yeah. mentioned during the podcast with Yannick that um, I don't think Bob Bowman is known as a nurturing coach. And then I thought yeah. to myself, well, that's a little bit unfair because I don't really know Bob Bowman. So then I reached, yeah. immediately reached out to you and I was like, hey, can I get you on the podcast? Because I, I want to yeah. hear from you. But because it's, it's not the fact that um, you're not nurturing. Obviously, you've, you've nurtured some of the greatest athletes in history. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are, there are things that um, you truly believe in, in in order to be mm -hmm. successful. And, and one right. of them is obviously excellence. You just can't come in and be average every day. You've got to right. be excellent. Um, right. So, so when you threw the coffee, I could completely, <laughs> completely relate to that. Um, 
when you demanded excellence, I could completely relate yeah. to that. And when, when somebody, uh, as like an athlete, misunderstood that, I could completely relate to that as well. well because for sure, the, for you know, sure, right? Yeah, there's, it happens. There's that, you know. So, um, but why, why is it that you demand excellence uh, every day? It's how I was raised. Uh, you know, when I, my parents were, I feel like I had a great childhood, Columbia, South Carolina, you know, grew up. Um, and I don't think my parents were like overbearing, but if I came home with a 98 on my test, my mom would say, what you do? What could you do to get a hundred? Hmm. You know, it was, it was about how far can you go with this? you know, hmm. we expect you to kind of set big, some goals. Um, and I think that, and I did that. And when you start doing that, you start achieving some things, feeling good about it, kind of pushing your limits. And uh, I saw swimming as an, a perfect venue to sort of test what was possible? That was the great thing with Michael. It wasn't like, oh, we want to go and bag all these medals. It was like, what is possible? Mm. Could somebody really swim on that level for eight events? Mm. You know, beforehand, no. Now, yeah, some people know it's possible. It's not easy, but, you know, uh, and, and everybody has that, right? What's possible for you? Is it possible Allison Schmidt could swim 152 into 200 free? I think it probably is even today, but it hasn't happened yet. But you know what I mean? It was yep. like, that's what we're trying to, to figure out. And that's what the fun part, the fun part's that journey. Mm. Yeah. All right, all right. I want to dig into a couple of specific events because I was on the pool deck in 2008 on the other mm. side, kind of as an observer. Um, you yeah. know, I had, I had Cesar Cielos. We had, we had an incredible result ourselves. First exactly. gold medal in, um, in Brazil's swimming history. It was, it was a huge mm -hmm. event, but at that time I kind of just had a couple of athletes. So I had time to, to watch and, Obviously, uh, it was it was Michael's um, greatest Olympic performance, um, but there was certainly a time where I felt, at some point during the meet, you know, you go from hoping things are going to happen to to just kind of um, you know uh, fulfilling those dreams yeah, of like oh you know yeah. things happen. But I noticed a shift, and I want to know if you noticed this. I noticed a shift on the pool deck when Michael had imposed his will so much that the future events that he had coming up, it was almost to me like everybody had just said, this guy's unbeatable. We can't, we can't beat him. Like uh, it, there was a shift in feeling on the pool deck. There was a yeah. shift in mentality. Every time Michael would do something, it was like the wind was just taken out of everybody. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe he just did that. How is somebody right. so dominant? How is somebody so powerful? How is, how is he that good? I can't beat that. Guy. And I kind of felt the shift amongst the competitors. Did you as coach and athlete, did you notice a shift in 2008? I don't think so. And I think it's mainly because we were just focused on whatever was the next thing, right? There's so many things that went into that. I, I've noticed that Michael, you know, it was, he got super tired. People don't notice that. Like after the 200 IM final, <laughs> you, they're at a lot of these, like, you know, during COVID, they showed all the Olympics, right? So they show all of his races. And every one, he's like fired up or sitting on the lane line or doing whatever. And after the 200 IM final, he barely moves. And I looked over and his eyes, he just has these dark circles. And I was like, oh, my gosh, he is really tired because that was long into the program. Mm. And I remember I met him at the mix zone, which is what we would do when he came through. I'd meet him. And we'd walk down the hallway to swim down. And I remember him saying, I don't have anything left. And I was like, 
I looked at my watch. I was like, well, you better fake it because we got a 100-fly semi in 22 minutes. That's for real. That's <laughs> honestly – and he was like, okay. And so it's – we were just really focused on trying to get there, you know what I mean, to try to take the next step. So I didn't really notice what other people were doing, but uh, it was a uh, yeah, kind of crazy experience. That's interesting you say that because um, that, that certainly is one of the most memorable swims of, of – you know, his career, actually, the, yeah. the 100 butterfly. So he goes from being completely exhausted to having to swim this 100 butterfly yeah. and then and then winning the gold medal by a hundredth of a second. So do you remember um, at all if, you know, what was said as he was uh, preparing for the final of the 100 butterfly or even what you yeah. said, you know, what are the last things you said to him or anything like that? I 100% remember. And one of the things that, it was our policy with Michael actually with all my kids is I don't talk to them before the races, like at the venue. I'm, I mean, I say, have fun out there. So, you know, we don't talk about the strategy that happens before mm -hmm. in practice months before in the training camp, maybe a couple of days before, or, you know, something like that. But mm -hmm. so after I saw the semis of the fly and I kind of knew we were running low on gas, uh, during Beijing, Michael and I had breakfast together every morning. It was just kind of the thing, right? Because we'd do that, go to the venue. That would be it. So we're sitting at breakfast um, before the 100 fly final. And I didn't want to do it. But I was like, you know what? This is going to be so close. And I have to use everything I got. And I said, you know what I read in the paper today? And he was like, what? I was like, Cavage said it'd be good for swimming if you did not win eight goals and he's the guy to do it. And that's like literally what he said. And Michael physically got bigger. He said, he said, what? I, I'll never forget that. It was like he grew two inches. And I was like, well, that's what he said. And, and he, we didn't really even talk about it. That's all I needed to do. I was like, okay, I've done all I can do now. He's that he was ready at that point. And so, yeah, that's how it turned out. <laughs> you know, the other part, the other part about the strategy was, for months, a year before, we talked about this race because we knew it would be the most challenging race for him, right? Michael is a 400 swimmer who comes down to 100, literally, physiologically. He's a 400 IMer. He does great 200s. The 100 is as far down as he can reach. He can't even, the 50, he can't even do a 50, right? Not a good one. So we knew that would be the biggest challenge. And we talked about, I said it 100 times, it's like, if you're out in 23 anything, you win. He was like 24.04 in the race, right? I looked up. I was like, okay, come on. <laughs> so it was like, I was like, 23.99, you win easily. Yeah, he would have won by a two tenths, right? <laughs> so it was kind of like, I'll never forget looking up at that one. Um, I love it. Oh, I'll tell you one crazy Beijing story, mm. right, about mental preparation. We talked about visualization, and we talked about kind of living – this stuff and it's also a coaching message hmm. so we're in michigan and it's well before the games i'm gonna say it's six weeks before the trials okay and it's kind of one of those times where we're having swim camp you know you're doing a million things like it's one of those days where i'm just kind of doing stuff and trying to move get everything ready and michael comes in and i was like the last thing i really wanted to do was like chat with him at that point but he's like hey i keep having this dream over and over and I was like, do I really want to know? And he's like, yeah, it's a swimming dream. And I'm like, well, okay, what is it? And he says, 
I keep looking up at the scoreboard and it says 307. And I was like, well, and honestly, just to get him out of my office, I said, well, that's probably your 300 split in the 400 IM. If you're going to go 403, you know, you're going to finish in 56, be 307 or whatever it was. And he was like, hmm. The hair stands up on the back of my neck right now when I tell you, you look up there, it was 307 flat, the 300 in Beijing. Wow. He was like living this stuff, breathing it, right? It's wow. like, when I looked up and said, I was like, oh my God, this is like well beyond just us right now. This is a big thing, right? Because wow. he was just right on it. And that's, he's the best visualizer of all time because yeah. he spent lots of time doing it. And he got it down to such a great uh, level that he could really get a specific performance. You know, he gave me a sheet of paper in uh, May of 2007 with his Olympic goals on them. And the 100 free, he had 47.50. And I was like, okay. He was 47.51 leading off the relay, right? Mm. All that kind of stuff. So he's – that's how you can get really good at that. It's a skill, but you have to practice it. Wow. Incredible <laughs> stuff. Uh, thanks for sharing that story. That's, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, t tell me a time, because I'm interested in this. Tell me a time where you guys were struggling, you know, like mm -hmm. where, where it was, where it was tough because, um, you know, this, this defines you and Michael as well in terms mm -hmm. of being able to work through, uh, times of struggle. Uh, give me an instance where, just things weren't clicking and it was, it was just tough for you to see Michael doing whatever he was doing. Okay. Well, we could go into the whole quad from like, you know, eight to 12. That was kind of a disaster, but I'm going to go to one that's like a little earlier, right? Which is a good coaching thing. Um, if you watch Michael Sidney race, everybody will say, well, he should have just gone out faster. He didn't kick off the walls. You know, there's some things, right? Uh-huh. Well, as we were preparing for the world championships in 2001, um, Michael came into Austin at the trials and broke the world record, which was the goal. And it was great. And he did it just the way he swam in Sydney. Started out slow, closed really fast, goes past Tom at the end, breaks the record. Good job. Well, we get to uh, Fukuoka, I guess, yeah. And in the prelims, he kind of cruises to a pretty good time. No big deal, right? So we're kind of looking pretty, but he kind of swam his thing the way he swims it. And then that night, he swims in the first semifinal, and I don't know, he goes 156, and he kind of struggled to do it. It wasn't a great race at all, right? It was kind of like, what are we going to do here? Then he gets out of Malchow and Esposito are in the next heat, and they just missed the world record by like a tenth. And Michael has a conniption. We're outside in the warm-up pool, the warm-down pool in Fukuoka, and he's like, they're going to break my record. I can't do this. Da -da 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 -da. He just has this whole thing. Like, he's upset. Like, there are tears, right? He's like 15. He's like a kid, right? But he's having a tantrum, basically. And I basically said, after a while, I was like, look, you stay at the hotel tomorrow morning and swim in the pool by yourself. And I'll see the team meeting tomorrow night before finals. And I don't want to hear about it again because it was just getting out. Like it was crazy. Right. And I had been trying to get him to take it out faster. Right. And so we go through this whole thing. And then when we get to the team meeting, we go in and he's sitting over there and I made sure I was by the door 
So he couldn't really get to me. I didn't talk to him. We have the team meeting. Going to finals, I start walking down the hallway. And all of a sudden, I hear this voice. It's like, Bob, Bob. And I, I turn around. I was like, hey, what's up? And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm the coach of the U.S. team. I'm going to finals. And he says, should I take it out tonight? And I say, hell yes. And then turn around and go get on the bus. And that's the last time I talked to him. So then he does. He's first at the 50. He drops <laughs> the record. It was kind of the breakthrough to the Michael we know, right? Mm. After that. But it was like we had to – that was kind of a struggle. And I think the good news for coaches is you can kind of help them through that a little bit and just yeah. don't put up with all their drama. I'm yeah. not sure that's as good a struggle talk as you want. I could go into the major stuff, but that just took – years to kind of get through and that was us hanging together right the reason that we got through the struggles between beijing and london and the struggles were a hundred percent understandable when we sat down to kind of think about 2009 and beyond we had some pretty good goals for 2009 because he could break the world records right some records after that is like we're not winning eight again it's, nobody's doing that you know so it's kind of like well what do we do and there, there, and I totally understand his lack of motivation to do that, and I handled it completely wrong, right? Because what did I do? I, when he didn't come to practice, I would give him a voicemail and say, well, you're throwing your life away, and you're killing the whole sport, and why are you doing this? And guess what? He missed two more weeks. <laughs> that was so good, right? And then when he came in, I'd be mean about it. I'm like, well, I don't care what you do today because we've already thrown this thing away. You're just – playing golf all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Well, after a year of that, Peter Carlisle, our agent, gave me a book, which has changed my life, and actually Michael's too. He's read it three or four times as well as I. I've read it five times. The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And Peter said, how about instead of just thinking about all the things that didn't happen, right? Why don't, when he comes into practice, you just give him the best practice you can give him that day, and then that's it. No expectation for tomorrow. And I started doing that, mm. and he started coming, mm. and he started doing okay. Mm. And we were able to kind of get to a place then where things were not terrible going into London. I mean, they were great, but they mm. weren't terrible, right? Yeah. And my favorite thing about London, and we talk about the struggles, is, you know, Number one, it's a lesson in hubris because that was Allison's final, right? And Allison won the final in the 200 free. And I'm like, we're riding high. And I literally said to myself, we're going to win two gold medals in 10 minutes because Michael's coming up in the 200 fly right after, right? Mm. So I should have just kept my mouth shut <laughs> to myself. I didn't even say it out loud. I just said, wow, damn, we're going to win two in 10 minutes here. But when Michael got beat in the 200 fly, and honest to God, every time I see that video, I didn't watch that video for till this year, right? I didn't see it for eight years. I'm like, how do you get beat? But anyway, he does, and that's fine. But my first thought when I looked at the scoreboard was 153 flat? That's a miracle. Nobody in history could reach down and do that to be second. It doesn't, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when Michael came out of the mix zone to see me, he said that too. He was like, Hey, not that bad. 153 flat. I'm like, yeah, you should have got your hand on He's like, yeah, I messed up the turn and it messed up. I really don't think. But it was kind of like another story about how we approach things. It's like, for us, it's the quality of the swim, not necessarily how it stacks up against the other people. And I'm not minimizing that at all. We hated losing. And he came back and avenged it later, right? But it was like, 
if you knew what didn't go into that swim, that was a remarkable effort, probably one of his best efforts ever to just get to that level. Yeah, I, so absolutely. that's kind of a struggle part. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, uh, you know, you don't bounce back and, and, and do what he did if you, you couldn't handle disappointment as well or figure out how to, how yeah. to bounce back from disappointment. Um, yeah, just on a personal sense, mm -hmm. as, as kind of a father figure and somebody that cared for him like a son, you know, yeah. when, when he did make headlines that you, you didn't want him to make, um, mm -hmm. let's just say, how did that affect you? Like, how, what are you thinking? Like, how do I respond to this as a, as a human, as, as a man, as, you know, like, what do you uh, think? I'm thinking, well, number one, I'm concerned about him, right? Yeah. Because I was like, what's this going to do to him mentally and just mm. as a person, right? Yeah. Because he was pretty down. And looking back on it now, the bong thing, right? Mm -hmm. That at the time was like a nuclear bomb went off, right? We were mm -hmm. like, this is the worst thing that could possibly ever happen, right? And now yeah. you think back on it, you're like, are you serious? We, yeah. that, what's, what the hell? But he was very down because he felt like he had let everybody down on that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I was just very concerned about his mental health and because, and actually the good news was, you know, 2012 was out there and the world championships that summer were out there. So we can kind of look to something that kind of got him through it. Um, the later one, you know, like the, the, the ones in uh, the 2014 one, that was a hard one hmm. because it was like, then you're worried about, is he ever going to get it together about this stuff? Because, yeah. you know, the swimming's going to be done soon, if not already. Right. We're like, you know, so after the swimming, what's going to happen? And to his credit, he went and got help and, you know, checked in and just, did the hard work that it took to kind of get to a good place as a person. And now he carries that into his life and he carried that into like, you know, 2015 and 2016. And I enjoyed those years so much because it was kind of like the old days, right? It's like, he loved swimming. He was in a good place. You know, it, we were playing with house money, whatever he did was good. Right. Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to be bad. And uh, the best part is to see him now with the boys and the family and know that he's sort of, you know, has a life beyond swimming. He's not yeah. a swimmer anymore. Yeah, yeah that, that's a nice transition. Did you at that time feel, you know, obviously you've got to go into protection mode and you've got to be, mm -hmm. you know, like I, I can't let people in. Was that yeah. difficult for you as a coach? Did you, did you have people that you could trust and you could talk to, um, to, to have an outlet yourself? I did. You know, we had a kind of inner circle. Yeah. And um, so I, I definitely had some people. You know, his Debbie Phelps, <laughs> we had a lot in common at that time. But Peter Carlisle has been our rock through everything. And not only would he help us kind of know what to do, but just kind of be there for us, right? Yeah. Let us know it's going to be okay, and we'll just take it step by step. I mean, the whole team, really, there's a team of people at Octagon that we've worked with for 20 years now that really helped. So tell me this then. What separates Michael Phelps from just – any other great athlete, you know, and I'm, I'm putting him in the category of the shirt that I'm wearing today. I'm putting him in the category yeah. of, you know, Kobe Bryant. I'm putting him with Tiger Woods. I'm putting him with, with Michael Jordan. Obviously there's, there's, and, and Lewis Hamilton, we talked about him. There are, yeah. there are, there are certain people that come along that are just different. I mean, they're not mm -hmm. just champions. They're just incredibly yeah. different from everybody else. So from, from, from the inside, tell us, yeah you know what separated him well truly separated him it's a combination of factors right 
so it's I don't think it's one thing, but I think if you said there are maybe five things that go into creating a significant champion, yeah, a super in, champion, and in, and and in swimming, I'm going to stay in swimming. Mm -hmm. Well, number one, he had a family. You know, his sister had already been on the world championship team. They understood the sport. They were all in on what we were doing, and they were ready to support me in this whole process, right? And the answer for Debbie Phelps or Fred Phelps, for that matter, was, what did the coach say? Then you do what the coach says. You know what I mean? Is there was respect for the coach. There was respect for what we were going to do. I communicated with them. There was a plan for how this was going to work. So that was one factor. The other factor was uh, his physiological, obviously, makeup, right? He's made for swimming. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. There's, he has genetic gifts for swimming. So that was a win. Number three was his environment. He happened to be in North Baltimore Aquatic Club where there's a history of producing Olympic swimmers and world records and the expectations were there. Mm -hmm. And he came up through that thing. And just like those little kids, he's like, oh, well, I'm going to do that. You know, he gave me a sheet of paper when he was 11 and we did a goal setting thing. And I said, on the top of the paper, write your dream goal. And then on next, do your seasonal goal and break it down. And on the back of the page, at the top of the goal says, I, my dream goal is to swim in the Olympics. But on the back of the page, it said, my dream goal is to win goal. And he crossed it out because I think he thought at 11, that was too big a goal. So he just said swim in the Olympics. So he was already geared towards it, right? Mm. Number three is his psychological makeup. Either, honestly, he had it when I got to him. I think I helped him kind of hone the concentration aspects of it, some things like that. Mm. But he can concentrate and relax under pressure. And what makes those great ones great is as the pressure rises, they get better, mm. right? Michael can't really be at his best if the pressure's low. Mm. He can push himself so far. But when the stakes are the highest, he is at his best. So that's mm. a thing. Um, and then, you know, he just – I would say that he just had all of those things, and he had an emotional – a willingness to learn. That's the thing about Michael, even today, right? Every night I go over there for dinner pretty much. I leave here, go play with the kids while he fixes. I mean, Michael cooks dinner most nights. And he is constantly wanting to learn how to do it better. He was like, should I cook these steaks five and a half on each side or five? Or what do you think? And then once you do it, he'll serve it. And I'll say, wow, that's really great. He'll say, no, I should have probably gone four, four and a half. You know what I mean? Like he's constantly trying to raise his game and learn about whatever he's doing. And he was like that in swimming. There's no better student of the sport in general than Michael, right? He, he understood how the races should be swum, how other people might be swimming them, uh, just the sport as a whole, how it was growing, what might help it go to the next level. So he had that as well. And I think all the great ones are aware, right? I, I give the example like the best swimmers I've ever coached are aware of everything that's going on in their environment at all times. And the one that I would say is that at our pool at Meadowbrook, there was a 50 meter pool and we would swim at the far end of it in four short course lanes. So then you'd have the 50 meter pool. You'd have a lesson pool. You would have a wall that was like a glass wall. And then there's a lobby. So it's pretty far away, 60, 70 meters away. Right. Somebody would come in and Michael would be doing this set where he's getting three seconds between the repeats, right? Like hundreds or something on a minute or whatever he was doing. And he'd look up and be like, is that my mom just came in the lobby? I'm like, and it would be. 
Mm. You know, so he's he's just kind of like aware of stuff in a very crazy way. And he would say, he would go to somebody in lane one and say, hey, you did really well in that set today. That most people wouldn't even know happened. So that's a part of it too. But it's a combination of those factors. And when you put those all together, they are fueled by one thing. Michael and Kobe and Michael Jordan and Tiger, who I've actually, you know, had the good fortune of coming in contact with three of those, Kobe and mm-hmm. Tiger and Michael, uh, they cannot stand to lose. They can, it's not that they love winning. The winning is great, but that's what they feel like they're supposed to do. They cannot tolerate losing, and if they do get beat, that will motivate them to do whatever it takes to not get beat the next time. So that's, I an, think that's, that's, an, that's an interesting point because um, – I, I, I truly think that's almost the separating factor because everything mm-hmm. else you've talked about is a fairly common, fairly common. Yeah. yeah. But the thing that separates people, and I, and I guess I learned more about this during watching the documentary on, on Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. the last dance. Yeah. And, and I've heard rumors about this in, in terms of Michael, cause I don't know Michael that well, to be yeah. honest. I just mm-hmm. see him from a distance, but um, you know, when you, when you watch the documentary, there are things that Michael Jordan did that made every single person around him uncomfortable, you know, mm-hmm. almost oh, to the point, sure. almost <laughs> to the point where people would say, some people would say, Jordan's a bit of a prick, you know, or Jordan's yeah, an yeah, asshole yeah. or Jordan's yeah. a, you know, whatever they want to categorize it as it made them uncomfortable because they were just never on Jordan's level. And, I, and I've heard similar things about Michael in terms yeah. of he could be hard to deal with, or he could be hard. It was a tough teammate or, mm-hmm. um, or it was just a, he was a tough competitor. So would you agree with that? There was something about Michael that just made everybody else around him uncomfortable. A hundred percent. Okay. And those that could deal with it, it made them better. Those that couldn't, they left. Sure. That's how it worked. Um, and it, you know, he, I try and think of a good example. <laughs> Michael, like, if he cared about you, he would yell at you, right? If he could care less about you, he wouldn't notice you or put any time into you in, the, mm-hmm. in terms of the practice situation, sure. right? Yeah. So I, I always go back to a situation we had here training for 2016 with Chase, right? Chase Kalish. Uh-huh. And Chase came up with us at NBAC. We've known him since he was a baby. And, you know, he was always kind of looked at as like the little brother, right? Like Michael's little brother, right? So he's getting ready for the part I am for the first Olympics that he's going to go to and we're getting everything straight. And there was a situation where, and to be honest, if I could do this again, I would do it differently. But Chase had this habit of breathing into the walls on freestyle, like double breath. Mm -hmm. And he did it a lot and he would do it in training. And it was kind of like, I felt like his race would be close, and if he, that would be a difference, right? And it was. He only got beat like four-tenths or something. I mean, it was pretty close. But I decided one night, and it was probably the Arizona heat, too. I remember it was like a million degrees, but I was like, you know what? I am not tolerating this anymore. He did it in the set. I got Chase out, and I used a nuclear reaction, right? And I was like, you cannot do that. You're not going to do it again. If I, every time I see you, you're going to start the whole practice over. <laughs> I mean, I was like the whole thing, right? Like, and I had never been like that with Chase because he's a good boy and he always does what we want him to do pretty much. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I have got to get this taken care of. Cause, and I said, I, if I don't get this taken care of, I can't get to the other eight things that we have to deal with. Like your backstroke, right? You know, that's going to make a big difference. And I definitely went too far with it. 
but I wanted to make the only one chance I had, I wanted to make the impression. So Chase leaves, I leave practice, and I'm like, I need Michael to follow up with Chase and let him know that I'm just trying to help him, right? So Michael calls Chase and says, why don't you stop acting like a little baby and do what you're supposed to do and get tougher and all that. So Chase is like the next day going back to Georgia, right? He's leaving, right? <laughs> so that's a Michael thing. It's like when I really needed him to kind of be the good cop, I was already the bad cop. He was the worst cop <laughs> because he doesn't tolerate anything, right? But he yeah. knows that those things are important. Yeah. And he's like, you know, Chase, if you're going to win a gold medal, you're nobody's going to double breathe and win a gold medal. Yeah. So if that's something you will accept, then – you're not ever going to get there. So if you want to get there, you have to do it. The interesting thing is Chase never did another double breath. I've never seen him do one. Yeah. But it was just kind of one of those things, a good example of Michael. He will push, particularly people he cares about. He really cared about Chase. He cares about Allison. He'll tell Allison, he's like, you know, are you going to start kicking? You know, he'll, he'll, he'll say like, you know, you got no chance if you're not doing a 6B kick all the time this whole set, you know, and she'll be, she knows how to react to that. Um, I think new people, it's very hard. You know, new people who came into that environment because, number one, he's going to show you that he's kind of the alpha male, right, in that yep. environment because that's mm -hmm. what he was. And number two, he might not say it very nicely, but very similar to Michael Jordan. Like when we watched, we watched that together, Michael and I did, and uh, there would be things and I'd be like, wow, this is just like one of our practices. Um, so he definitely had a passion for it like that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being honest there and sharing that yeah. because um, I think that's an important aspect that people need to understand as well. That, and, and I don't look at it as a negative, to be honest. Like, I really no, don't. No, I don't either. I, it's like, because that's what separates him, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what makes him him. And I'll be the first to say, you know, I coached Michael from 11 years old all the way up. And particularly in the age group ranks, as he was coming up, there's a whole list of people that he just mentally destroyed mm -hmm. in the groups coming on up because mm -hmm. they couldn't handle it. Yep. And that's, but that's his deal. Um, so, and I didn't want to take that away from him. Right. That's his, yeah. his biggest attribute. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, <laughs> exactly. You do not want to take that away, even though you're probably, it's probably at the expense, the attrition of some it's other. The, of the attrition <laughs> is, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't, it didn't help my overall, you know, yeah. getting these groups together, but uh, yeah. yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Well, good. Well, let's just leave it up. Leave me with one thing then. What are you most proud of him now when you see you spend time with him? He's a dad now. What do you love seeing about him now? I love seeing him with the boys, mm -hmm. you know, Cause it's just great because they actually have some traits of his and we'll have some... <laughs> Boomer does this thing that Michael used to do. Uh, Michael will tell Boomer to do something and Boomer clearly hears him and he just kind of acts like he doesn't and keeps doing what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And he'll be like, is this what it was like coaching me? I was like, yeah, about 90% of the time <laughs> I would be like, Hey, over here. And when he didn't want to do it, he just wouldn't pay attention. Right. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, so that's kind of funny, but he's just really, I think he's careful with the boys to not like project any of his stuff on them. Like mm -hmm. we hope they golf and we're teaching them they're playing golf, but they're actually pretty good swimmers, mm -hmm. but we're, you know, we're just trying to like keep it low key and help them kind of just have fun and grow up and not have a bunch of expectations on them. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, listen, I, I truly appreciate your time. Like I said, there's so much stuff we could go into, but just breaking down the characteristics of a champion and sure. in terms of how it relates to you as a coach, I'm very thankful. So I appreciate your time. Happy to do it.
Thank you, Brett. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Take care. You too.